0: I'd like for you to open God's Holy Word this morning to John chapter 15. And our text this morning comes from John chapter 15 and verse 11. Jesus, speaking to His disciples, said to them, John chapter 15 and verse 11, These things I have spoken to you that my joy may remain in you and that your joy may be full. May the Lord give us His wisdom and understanding of His Word to us today. The Lord desires that our joy in Christ May be full. In John chapter 17, which is a a record of Jesus' prayer to his heavenly Father, we read in John chapter 17 and verse 13, as Jesus prayed, But now I come to you, speaking to his Father, and these things I speak in the world, that they that is, His disciples, all of us who are followers of Him, that we might have His joy, the joy of Christ, fulfilled in us. That's Jesus' prayer for His disciples, for us, that the very joy of God might be in our lives. And then in our text this morning, John chapter 15, In verse 11, Jesus speaks to His disciples directly that His joy might remain in them and that they might have joy to the fullest. That should be the norm, really, in our Christian life, that we live in the joy of the Lord. In this particular text, the whole context, Jesus gives us reasons how or shows us how we can have that joy we can have that joy even in the midst of trials didn't james say that we are to count it all joy when we fall into different trials knowing that it is in the testing of our of our faith we develop perseverance doesn't mean we're not going to struggle. Weeping indeed may endure for the night, but joy comes in the morning. It's limited. We shall indeed sow in tears, but we shall reap with songs of joy. The Apostle Paul in his ministry said that we are always caring about the tribulations of the Lord. But he also says that even though we are sorrowful, Yet we are always rejoicing. Jesus said, as He referred this, even to the point of persecution. Keep your place there in John and turn with me to Matthew. Matthew chapter 5. Matthew chapter 5 and beginning with verse 10 this is the eighth beatitude he says to us blessed blessed or happy are those yes happy are those who are persecuted for righteousness sake for theirs is the kingdom of heaven blessed are you when they revile and persecute you and say all kinds of evil against you falsely For my sake. And again, verse twelve, when these times come, what are we to do? Wring our hands? No, we are to rejoice and be exceedingly glad. For great is your reward in heaven. For so they persecuted the prophets who were before you. Even in difficult times, we can rejoice in the Lord, as Ryan read to us this morning in Philippians, even in the time of trial. David rejoiced in the Lord because the blessings of God were greater than any material blessing. He said that the Lord brought him greater joy than when the grain and the new wine appeared. When there was no trouble, when there was an abundance of the land, that was good. But the Lord's abundance brought him all the more joy. I thought about the struggling churches in Macedonia who supported Paul in his ministry. The text tells us that they gave generously, and they were overflowing with joy in the midst of their poverty, and that they gave even in a time when they were going through great affliction. They gave joyfully to the Lord. We can have joy because God, the Lord Jesus Christ, said, I will never leave you nor forsake you. And He promises us His constant presence with us. In Psalm 16 and verse 11, the psalmist cried out, In your presence, in your very presence, there is fullness of joy, and at your right hand are pleasures forevermore. Even to the point, yes, this morning we sang that, that uh, hymn, Shout to the Lord. We can get so joyful at times that we can shout to the Lord. Keep your place there, in John, and let's look at a few of these verses. Uh, Psalm chapter 5, Psalm 5 and verse 11. Let, those, let all those rejoice who put their trust in You. Let them ever shout for joy. Because You defend them, let those also who love Your name be joyful in You. Because we live in His presence. We can rejoice because we have been made righteous by the very righteousness of Christ. And then in Psalm 32... 32 in verse 11, David said, Be glad in the Lord and rejoice, you righteous, and shout for joy all you who are upright in heart. Because of what the Lord has done for us, it ought to make us want to shout. But wait a minute. We're Reformed Christians Is it okay for us to shout? Well, I did some digging in the Scriptures this past week, and I found a verse that surely concludes to us that it's okay for Reformed people to shout, because the Scripture says that the Lord brought forth His chosen ones with a joyful shout. There it is. You know, well, what's the context of this? When the children of Israel came forth out of Egypt, they were so overjoyed with joy that they shouted before the Lord with a joyful shout. But we also to shout before the Lord because he's delivered us from the bondage and the iniquity of sin and delivered us and blessed us so gratefully. You know, it is the it is very joy of God to bring forth many sons to glory. Therefore, it is our mutual joy in God to be recipients of His glorious salvation. So we can rejoice in the glorious spiritual blessings that we've been studying about in Ephesians 1, that we've been blessed in the heavenly places in Christ Jesus with an abundance of spiritual blessings in the Lord. So brothers and sisters, it behooves us as Christians to live joyfully Before the Lord. Now, I think you know what I'm not talking about. I'm not talking about people, bless their hearts, who who walk around with some superficial smile on their face, like it's made out of plastic, you know, and it seems that they walk about in a rote fashion, praise the Lord, praise the Lord, you know, that sort of thing. No. I'm talking about a deep, abiding presence of the Lord in our life come trials, tribulation, or whatever that we live in day in and day out. No matter what happens to us, the joy of the Lord. That's the norm for us as Christians, to live in the midst of the joy of God. And as a pastor, did you know it's my responsibility to promote your joy in the things of God. The Apostle Paul to the church at Corinth, 2 Corinthians chapter 2 and verse 24, don't take the time to turn there. Paul says that we do not lord it over your faith, but we work for your joy. We want to see you joyful in the Lord. We want to see us coming before God and enjoying his presence together and ministering to one another. We work, it is our delight to see you walking in the things of God and bringing joy to the people of God and thus bringing joy to God Himself. And Paul in Philippians is hopeful that God would allow him to continue living in order that he might continue with them for their progress and joy in the faith. That's why we're here, to minister to one another, that we would continue in the joy of the faith. Paul also said when he was writing to the church, uh, speaking to his final farewell address to the church at Ephesus, he said that it was his desire... That he would finish the race, or he would finish the course that God had set before him, in order that he might fulfill the ministry with all joy. I thought of one of my favorite ministers in the in the Bible. He, uh, Steve Brown, his mission statement for his key life ministry is this: getting us getting us home with radical freedom and infectious joy as we walk in faithfulness to Christ. Isn't that what it's all about? To live in faithfulness to Christ and live in the midst of joy pleasing the Lord. Well, how can we do this? Jesus has given in this text this morning in John chapter 15 some precepts by which we can do these things. Look there in our text in John chapter 15. Verse 11, These things I have spoken to you. Now what is he talking about when he says these things? Well, possibly the whole upper room discourse where He gave them the promise that He was going away to prepare a place for them. If He was going away to prepare a place for them, He would come and receive them unto Himself that where He is, they will be also a great promise to us. The promise that He was going to send another Comforter or the Helper to come, the Holy Spirit to minister to us. The very promise of eternal life, possibly all of these things. But no doubt, implicitly, He's speaking about exactly what He's Talking about here in John chapter 15. Uh, some principles through which we can have joy. And I want us to look at four of those this morning. They're simply this. When I want to give you one word for each of the principles that we're going to talk about this morning, how do we have the joy of the Lord? Four things. Uh, we abide, we obey, we love, and we relate. First of all, we abide in Him. Look at verse 4. Jesus said, If you abide in Me, and I in you... First of all, let's clarify. What did He mean by I in you? He saying there explicitly that for us an admonition to abide in Him, but He promises us that He is, in fact, abiding with us. I will never leave you or forsake you. He is with us, and because of that, we can come before Him. We can abide in Him. What does it mean to abide in Him? It means to remain or to stay close, to be connected, to continue. It's a promise to us that... He, in fact, is in a continual union with us. And because of that, because of the union that we have in Christ, we can come to Him, continue in Him, abide in Him. And if my words abide in you, you shall ask what you desire, and it shall be done unto you. For He says there also in verse 4 that neither can we bear any fruit apart from itself. There's no way that's totally impossible to to think about this. If in fact Christ is the vine and we are a branch, how can a branch live when it is cut off from the vine? Amen. Totally impossible. We can do absolutely nothing if we are not abiding in him. If a, if a branch is cut loose, it withers up, it dries, and it is of no use. We'll look at that it's a little further down in our text. So we have here this this constant admonition of the Lord that He will constantly abide with us... And we are to abide with with Him. And if we do that, look at verse 5, we can bring forth much fruit. For without me, you can do nothing. That's, That's a glorious premise there. That we can bring forth much fruit. And may I submit to you that if we indeed are children of God, then we will be bringing forth some fruit. In the parable of the sower, you know, Jesus said the sower went forth to sow seed, and some of the seed fell upon uh, the hard, beaten down path, and some of the seed fell among the rocky places, and some of the seed fell among thorns, and it did not bring forth any fruit at all. But some of that seed fell upon the good soil, which reflects a heart that is open to the Lord, that those who know Christ, and in fact, that soil, or that person will bring forth good fruit because they are good soil. Jesus said uh, you can know a tree by its fruit. Very simple. A good tree brings forth good fruit and a bad tree brings forth bad fruit. If we are connected to the vine, if indeed we are in Christ, we will bring forth some fruit. Jesus said in the parable of the sower, some 30, some 60, some 100 fold that we will bring forth fruit, though there be levels of fruit bearing. But again, we can do... What's the word there in verse 5? Apart from Him, we can do what? Zero. Goose egg. Okay? Absolutely nothing. Now, does that mean that the philanthropist that does so much good in the world that he's not doing any good at all when he gives hundreds of thousands of dollars to, for something needed work? I don't think so. But I think what Jesus is saying here that we can do nothing of spiritual worth and spiritual good. Nothing that continues and lasts. We can do nothing of lasting value, of true spiritual worth, unless we do it with the help of God's Spirit, with the help of God's grace in us, that we can indeed bring forth fruit that will endure unto eternal life. We can do nothing like that apart from the work of God in our life. We can do nothing like that apart from Christ. Nothing good. Now, he says also here, look at, look at verse 6. If anyone does not abide in me, he is cast forth as a branch and is withered, and they gather them and throw them into the fire, and they are burned. Now, I've heard many interpretations of this text, and I'm sure you have too. Uh, many people advocate that this is referring to the, the works of a Christian, uh, that are burned up. I don't agree with that particular view, because it says here in this text, he his saying uses the personal pronoun he. You see, it's not just something that's cast in the fire, but he is cast out like a branch. This is clearly uh, referring to those that are may profess the name of Christ, but they they are not His. They say, Lord, Lord, but they know not the Lord, and they bring forth no fruit. You see, there's no relationship, you see. And the picture here is of destruction, of of eternal fire. You know, John the Baptist said the same thing. When he came upon the scene, and he said, The axe is laid to the root of the tree, and every tree that does not bring forth fruit shall be cast into the fire. He's talking about those who know not the Lord. They are the tares, if you will, that are sown in the field along with the wheat. They bring forth no fruit. The the father or the vine dresser, he's the one that takes them away that we read there in verse, verse 2. He takes away, and every branch that bears fruit he prunes, that it may bring forth more fruit, but the branches that produce no fruit are cast aside. They're thrown into the fire. A few years ago, the, the Williams were so kind that they gave us some blackberry bushes. And we planted those. We just got a few berries last year but this year we have an abundance of blackberries and we are enjoying them so much. And I've gone out there from time to time and I've had to prune them a little bit and I've noticed that those branches that are healthy and they're connected to vine, guess what? They're bringing forth great fruit. But in the midst of that, I also looked within the bush and I noticed that some of those branches were dead. They are totally dried up. So what good were they? Useless, you see. They're not a picture of the Christian. They're a picture of something that's useless. And what did I do? I, I grabbed those dead uh, branches and just chopped them out and threw them away, you see. I'll burn them later of no use. But such is not the case with us who are truly connected with Christ. We will, in fact, bring forth some good fruit. Look at verse 7. If you abide in Me and My words abide in you, you will ask what you desire and it shall be done unto you. Here we see that Jesus is equating the very words that He spoke with the very with him very his very self if we abide in him and we abide in the words which he spoke to us to his disciples then we shall bring forth good fruit i thought about jesus when he was in the wilderness for 40 days and 40 nights and he was tempted by the devil you know he was hungry and he was very thirsty and the devil came to jesus and said Command that these stones be made bread. Oh, how he needed nourishment. Oh, how he needed something to to drink and to eat. And what did he say? Where did his nourishment come from? It is written, man does not live by bread alone, but by every word that proceeds forth from the mouth of God. That was His desire. That was what fed Him. That was what sustained Him in the midst of horrendous temptation that we cannot even imagine. It was the very Word of God. The Word that proceeded forth from God. We are to abide in Christ and abide in the Word that He has given to us in order that we might find our strength and our nourishment. Just as... Shelby sang this morning about the Samaritan woman who was so thirsty and needed to be replenished. And Jesus said, if you would, I would give unto you living water, in which if a person receives this living water, it shall be a well in him springing up unto eternal life. That's the Word of God. We need the nourishment from Christ. We need the refreshing of the Word of God just as that branch needs the, the life-giving sap or the essence of that vine, that the vitality to give it nourishment in order that it can produce fruit. Even so do we. We need the vitality of God and His Word for our life. And Him was life. And His life was the light of all men. We need the Word in order to defend ourselves against the wiles of the devil in order to find strength. And it's through abiding in Christ and through only abiding in Christ that we will find the dynamic for the Christian life. That we learn to commune with the Lord. As we learn to stay with Him, to abide with Him, we are connected with Him, we remain with Him. We seek Him. And when we do that, when we live in His presence, when we find this connection with Him, He says that our prayers will be effectual there in the end of verse 7. You will ask what you desire and it shall be done unto you. Because we are in communion with with the Lord... We know what to pray. We're in the presence of God. We're living out the will of God. And therefore we pray according to the desires of God. And then and only then as we are connected to Him, the vine, we find the fullness of God and we bear much fruit. Isn't that why we're here? To enjoy God God, and to glorify Him. Look at at verse 8. Here's the goal. And by this my Father is glorified that you bear much fruit so that you will be my disciples. There you have it. The chief characteristic of a disciple is that we what? We bear fruit. Fruit that will last. Look at verse 16. God's purpose. For you did not choose me He says to His disciples, as it certainly relates to us as well, we did not choose Him, but He chose us and appointed us that we should go forth and bear fruit and that our fruit should remain and that whatever we ask in the Father's name, He will give unto us. Because we pray in accordance with the will of God and we are living in accordance with God's good purpose. So how do we find joy in the Christian life? A stayed upon Jehovah. Hearts are fully blessed. Finding as He promised. Perfect peace and rest. Day in. Day out. Staying close. Abiding in Him. As He in fact is the only source for our vitality. To abide in Him. And then notice secondly we are to obey what He has said Look in verse 9. As the Father loved me, I also have loved you. Abide in my love. First of all, before we get to the commandment part, can you imagine this? That He has loved us in the very same way, in a very same sense, maybe not to the, 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 the degree within the very Godhead, but He's loved us with the same love that the Father loved Jesus. Wow. Wow. That deep, that tender, that type of unchanging love, that's the way, the love that He has loved us. So how do we abide in His love? What, what can we, we show forth to prove that we are abiding in His love? As the father's loved me, I also have loved you, abide in my love. And he tells us how in verse ten. If you what? If you keep my commandments, you will abide in my love. So we abide in him to have the strength and the vitality and the nourishment from God and His Word in order that we might keep the commandments and then through keeping the commandments we please the Lord and through keeping the commandments we do abide in Him. You see, it's reciprocal. We obey the Lord, and because of that, we find His blessings in abiding. And we abide in Him, and we find the strength in order to keep the commandments. Because as He said, apart from me, you can do nothing. Abiding leads to obedience, and obedience leads to abiding. You know, that is the only motivation, truly, for the Christian life. Why do we desire to obey because of the grace that he showed upon us it's not that we it, it, it's really not even the the glorious hope that we're going to uh, enjoy uh, enjoy all the bliss of heaven is it no we look forward to that certainly but the glorious most glorious thing about is of heaven is it because Christ is going to be there you see we want to know him we want to obey him because we want to please him that's the motivation uh, Whereas other religions, uh, their desire for heaven is a selfish reason because they believe that they're going to receive 70 virgins or or heaven's going to be some type of sensual place where all their fleshly desires are met. Not so. No. We desire to obey Him because of the glorious love that we have experienced. You see, He's the perfect example. He abided in the Father's love. We see this in in verse 10. Look Look at verse 10, the latter part of that. Just as I kept my Father's commandment and abide in His love. No doubt Jesus kept the moral law as well as the ceremonial law absolutely perfect. But I think this is talking about His whole ministry. Uh, that he carried out the will of the Father as he submitted himself to the Father. He, pre- he preached and he taught. He did miracles in order to please the Father. And then he showed the ultimate form of love by laying down his life for us. He gave of himself. He offered himself up to the Father as a perfect sacrifice for us. He lived in absolute obedience to the Lord. And so are we. We obey because we desire to please Him. Whatever you do, do all in the name of the Lord Jesus Christ for His glory. Then not only do we obey the Lord or abide in the Lord and obey the Lord, but then notice also We are to love. Yes, we're to love God. But here he says we are to love one another if we desire our joy to be full. Look there in verse 12. This is my commandment. Not just a good idea, is it? But a commandment that you love one another. And how is that? As Jesus had loved his disciples. Can you imagine the, the... sweetness and the intensity and the glory that these disciples experienced walking with Jesus those three, three and a half years. (laughs) And, And how at times Jesus had to put up with the thickness of their heads that they did not understand all that Jesus was saying, that they just didn't get it. And yet the Lord kept loving them. He kept ministering to them. He was patient with them. He was kind to them. And yes, He was stern with them at times too. And He was blunt with them at times as well because He loved them. And, and He says to His disciples in the same way that I have loved you, you are to love one another in order that you might find the joy of the Lord. Look in John chapter 13. Very familiar text. John chapter 13 and verses 34 and 35. Jesus said, A new commandment I give to you, that you love one another as I have loved you, and that you also love one another. Now, wait a minute. Why is this a new commandment? Because even in Leviticus chapter 19 and verse 18, we're told that we are to love one another as ourselves. So what does he mean just exactly here by the new commandment? Well, I think John MacArthur has a note in his study Bible that When we love one another, that is the distinguishing characteristic before the world that we are His true disciples. In other words, it's the very mark of our brotherhood together that we love one another. Uh, And in that sense, it's new. It's, It's a glorious thing that when people see the body of Christ loving one another in this fashion, they'll do a double take. Wow, what is it that they have that they get along so well that they minister and love to one another and that joy that is present with them? It is in fact the distinguishing characteristic of a follower of Christ to emulate the very love that He has for us in showing that to one another. You remember Jesus showed his love, his servanthood, even to disciples by what? By washing their very feet. Peter got upset about that. He couldn't understand how the Lord Himself would stoop to such a lowly service to wash His feet. Jesus said, If I do not wash you, you shall have no part in with Me. And He was doing this to show His disciples that they were to continue forth in that kind of love as well. Look at John chapter 13. And this is after Jesus had washed the disciples' feet. In verse 14 of chapter 13, He said, If I then your Lord and Teacher have washed your feet, you also ought to wash one another's feet. For I have given you an example that you should do as I have done to you. Most assuredly I say to you, a servant is not, not greater than his master, nor is he who is sent greater than he who sent him. That's our life, isn't it? To love one another, to serve one another, uh, and to and to live as what as Jesus lived, and He says, "Blessed and happy are you if you do these things." To love one another ought to be about as natural as breathing, I believe, as Christians. Why is that? Now, do, do we expect uh, the, the, the pagans to love us? No, we don't. Do we expect them to love one another with this kind of God to love? No, we don't. Why, can, why should we expect each other to love each other like this? Because of anything that we've done? No, because this type of love, this agape love, has been shed abroad in our hearts. Therefore, we love one another because God's love has been shed abroad in our hearts. It is a part of your life, brothers. As a Christian, it, it, it's as natural as breathing. We, we have that desire to love because God is love. And we are His. And therefore, we ought to desire and, in fact, to carry out His love for us. Why is that? Because we're strong, because we are no, because we're connected to the source of love. We're the branch, and He is the vine. You know, this, this week, this past week, yesterday, as a matter of fact, we celebrated um the, I can't call her anything, but Aunt Faye, because that's what we've known her as. And we've looked at the life whose legacy left us a life of love. Many of you were here. What a blessing it was... To look back upon this life and reflect upon one who simply abided in Christ. And because of her abiding in Christ, she brought forth glorious fruit. And again, we emphasized yesterday that the service wasn't just about Aunt Faye. We honored her. But more than that, we honored her Lord because she as a branch was connected to the vine and she brought forth much beautiful fruit. And we looked at all the little lives that she had touched because of her relationship to the Lord and how she glorified her Father in heaven through her abiding and for, through her love for God and for her love for one another. Wow, what a picture. You know, sometimes for one reason or another, we simply don't show that love, do we? Well, we say, I'm, I'm pretty reserved, I'm shy, I'm concerned about propriety. Maybe we have a little pride. But we have to overcome these things and show love for one another. We're to love and humility and kindness. We're to forbear with one another. We're to care for one another and to give ourselves unself- unselfishly to one another. Peter said in First Peter chapter four and verse eight, above all things, with the context being in the last days before Christ returns, above all things, have fervent love for one for one another. For love covers a multitude of sins. Amen. You know we <laughs> we we can. It covers a multitude of sins for for many, many situations. For those, for example, for those that I would sin against, they show love towards me by forgiving me. And towards those who sin against us, we show love for them. Again, it's the hallmark of being a disciple. That we're gracious. We count, we we give people the benefit of the doubt. We're, we're able to grant them a little bit of slack and love them and be gracious to them. Why? Because it's not all about me. So what if you've done something to me hurt my feelings? Because God has forgiven me so much, ought not also to forgive you? And we live in that grace and forgiveness as one another in a community. And it's through this love and grace and kindness that we show to one another that we prove what? That we are in fact His disciples. And the love of God has been displayed upon us. So far be it from me not to show that same kind of love that He has shown unto us me. Look at verse 13. Chapter 15 and verse 13. Greater love is no one than this than to lay down one's life for his friends. Jesus didn't just say that, did He? He did that. He paid the ultimate sacrifice by laying down His life for his friends. First John chapter 3 and verse 16. By this we know love because He laid down his life for us. We ought also to lay down our lives for the brethren. We live as He lived. We live in a sacrificial love to one another. Again, I think about the churches in Macedonia. Who loved the Lord so much. And they loved Paul so much, they were willing to support his ministry. And they lavished upon Paul a generosity that they did not have because they themselves were extremely impoverished. They lived in deep poverty and they were suffering in a great trial. But in the midst of that, they gave out of love with an overflowing abundance of joy because they loved Him so much. They loved His work. They gave unto Him. We're called in in many other ways, brothers and sisters, to to love one another even to the point of sacrifice. And you know, I've seen that amongst folks here. It's such a glorious blessing. I've seen that, but may we continue doing that. And then lastly, let's look at the verse we, we just read there. In verse uh, 13, Greater love is no one than this, and to lay down one's life for his friends. Notice the word friends there. Now look at verse 14. You are my friends if you do whatever I have commanded you. Isn't that awesome? That Jesus would refer to His disciples as His friends? Isn't it awesome that Jesus refers to all of His that know Him and live in accordance with His commandments that we, in fact, are His friends? Isn't that quite remarkable? That the immortal, invisible God, the One who is absolutely all-powerful, all-knowing, everywhere present, the One who is eternal, the unchangeable sovereign of the whole universe, who created and sustains all things, who lives in unapproachable light, in all the brilliance of His transcendent glory, He came down and He humbled Himself and He took upon Himself the form of a servant. And He reaches out to us and He says, Now, you're my friend. You're my friend if you do what I have commanded you to do. Wow. You know, the Scripture says that Abraham was called the friend of God. I thought about Moses who was on su- such uh, a relationship with God that he spoke with God face to face. I thought about a David that was a man after God's own Part. You know, we're part of this company. We're part of this society of friends, this greatest fraternity that has ever been, this sorority fraternity, or however you want to word it. This group of people. We're part of the faithful in Hebrews chapter 11. That family continues of those who have abided in Christ, of those who have loved the Lord, those who have abided in Him. We have the joy and the glorious opportunity to relate with Him as a, as a friend. What a company we're a part of. And you would be surprised also that the Scripture lists one other person that was a part of this Society. You remember that Gentile, that centurion soldier, that his servant was sick and he came up to Jesus and said, Lord, would you heal my servant? I'm not worthy for you to come under my house. For Jesus said, I will come and I'll heal him. He said, Lord, I'm not worthy. I'm a man of authority. Just say the word. And my servant will be healed. And what did Jesus say to him? I have not seen such faith even in all of Israel. And this is what he said after he'd seen the, the display of this centurion, this Gentile's faith. And he says, I say unto you that many will come from the east and west and will sit down with Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob in the kingdom of heaven. That's us. That's us, whom He has called friends. He said that His descendants would be the descendants of Abraham. His people, His friends, if you will, will be as vast as the sand upon the seashore. As he spoke to his disciples and those who were gathered around him in this very gospel, he said, other sheep I have that are not of this fold. In John chapter 17, and verse 20, his high priestly prayer, he prayed for all of those that the Father had given him and for those that would believe upon his name, the elect of God, the church of God, the church of the living God even those who were the ones that according to 1 Corinthians chapter 1 were labeled as the ones that are not those who became the ones that are his friends his established people and he calls us our friends so we we take all at the thought that he humbled himself in such a fashion the glorious, transcendent God to come to this earth and call us unto Himself and that He would call us our friends. How's your joy this morning? How's your joy in the Lord? Let me ask you something. If you're lacking in joy, are you following these principles that Jesus has laid out in His Word? Are you abiding in Him day in and day out? Are you seeking to obey all that He's conveyed to us? Are we seeking to find out what pleases the Lord? And also, we receive joy how in loving one another. For so we fulfill the law of Christ. Isn't that the greatest commandment? We're to love God with all of our heart and love one another as ourselves. We can only do these things as we are related to Him, as we continue in Him, as we abide in Him, as we live in Him, as we find our dependence upon Him, as we keep His commandments. And as we do these things, we're part of that great glorious company, that company by which we are known as His friends. Let's pray together. Father, we thank You so much this morning for Your Holy Word. We thank You, Father, that the things that we've looked at today are high and lofty. We would have nothing to do with this relationship, O God, left to ourselves. We thank You, Lord, that You have revealed Your truth to Babes, to us. And we glory in the fact that Jesus Christ came into the world to save sinners. Father, we pray that our joy would be increased in You and that You, Lord, would have joy in us as well as we look to You, as we cling to You, as we abide in You. And we pray that we would do these things not just for ourselves, but that we would do these things and bring fruit unto you, for your glory. We pray this in Christ's holy name. Amen. Stand together for our visitors to start the tradition reading the doxology at service.